0: Welcome to The Doctor Diaries, a podcast which will take you behind the scenes of the intriguing medical world. Join me, Hanya Roethersby, an experienced business consultant in the medical sphere as I chat to our guests who will take us through their insights, experiences and ideas as an expert, thought leader and trailblazer in this exciting medical world. Welcome to the Doctor Diaries podcast. Today, it's our absolute pleasure to speak to Dr. Norman Swan. Dr. Norman Swan is trained in paediatrics and was one of the first medically qualified journalists in Australia, with a broadcast career spanning more than 30 years. He currently hosts Radio National's The Health Report and co-hosts Coronacast podcast. He also reports on 7.30 and is a guest reporter on Four Corners, appears on the drum and is an occasional host of Radio National Breakfast. In addition to being an active journalist and health broadcaster, Dr Swan has a deep strategic knowledge of the Australian healthcare system and is committed to evidence-based approaches to help young people, which is why he sits on the board of the Australian Research Alliance for Children and Youth. He was also the co-founder of Tonic Media Network, a a health channel that plays in GP's waiting rooms. And most recently, an author. He's the author of the book. So you think you know what's good for you. Welcome, Dr. Norman Swan. Thanks, Anya. Well, um, that introduction is uh, quite astounding that you've achieved so much. So we're really interested to hear, you know, to speak to you today as a a medical practitioner that's gone down the journalistic route and how that all started and how you've ended up in, you know, in this career.
1: Well, when I was at high school, I wanted to be an actor, um, but was sensibly diverted from that by my parents and anybody who spoke to me, (laughs) and uh, I concluded that it would be much safer in my life if I was a second-rate doctor rather than a second-rate actor. (laughs) And but I did a lot of acting and directing at university, and when I started specialising after graduating, and I was in London, the sense of not frustration with medicine, but there was other things I wanted to do came back. And I tried to get into drama school in London, failed miserably, which reinforced the notion that maybe I wasn't even a second rate actor, maybe a third rate actor. And I I wanted to get on the paediatric training course, the registrar rotation at Guy's Hospital in London, and thought it would do me good to go overseas. Um, I had my first part British membership, go overseas and get a good registrar's job overseas and then come back. And I've got a registrar's job at the Children's Hospital in Sydney. Well, I call it the Children's Hospital in Sydney. There were two children's hospitals in Sydney. Uh, one is now called Sydney Children's Hospital, used to be Prince of Wales Children's. And I, I had a job at the other one, which was called the Royal Alexandra Hospital for Children and has now moved out to Westmead so it's a children's hospital Westmead. So I got a job as a registrar there, which was great, really high quality training, learned a lot, But again, uh, this frustration came back. I saw too many doctors who'd got to their 50s and 60s and were sad because they felt there was something else they'd wanted to do with their life. Mm. And they'd been pretty talented as kids, concert pianists, musicians, um, writing. It was essentially medicine attracts, um, me accepted, medicine tends to attract a highly talented group of people who could do other stuff. They end up doing medicine, and people frustrated, wishing they'd done something else. And I couldn't—I couldn't think of anything worse than having regrets mm-hmm. in my middle age. So I thought, well, I'm going to try it out now. And The children's hospital was really good to me. They kept me on as uh, as a registrar, part time, and I, allowing me to experiment. Those were the days when gap years were frowned upon. There was very little flexibility, but the children's hospital, to its great credit, gave me that flexibility. I did quite a lot. To with that time. So I was doing quite a lot of different things then, and one of them was uh, starting to write. I thought I could write, and nothing much happened. And then I thought, well, I'll start writing about what I know about, which was health and medicine. Mm -hmm. And I started writing health stories, and I got a couple published in a paper that doesn't exist anymore, a weekend paper called the National Times. And I thought, well, this is it. This is this great career sitting in front of me. And I realized that actually to get on, I needed to get a job in the media. Mm. I wasn't particularly interested in doing a media course because then Australia is different from the United States. In the United States, most journalists have been through media courses. It's not true now. Even now in Australia, if you look at the intake to the ABC and intake into say the Nine, into say Fairfax, the Sydney Morning Herald, and the Age, they'll preferentially take a lawyer over mm. somebody who's been through the media school. So I, I kind of intuitively knew that, and I needed to get a job and an apprenticeship you know, anybody who's been through medicine knows that it's the apprenticeship that really mm. teaches you stuff. You know, you've got to know the books, but a surgeon learns her skills by standing, working with more experienced surgeons and you learn on the job as well as through the books. So I knew I didn't get a job. Nobody particularly wanted to give me a job because I we not at all impressed by this doctor who wanted to give up uh, this glittering career in pediatrics to become a journalist. And I, I, After a year or so of doing this, I I made up my mind that, look, when I'm bouncing my grandchildren on my knee uh, later in life, I could at least say to myself, I tried, not succeeded, and therefore feel more content with my life when I got to that point in my life. I was in my late 20s, mid to late 20s at this point. And the week that I was making this decision, I was gonna do respiratory medicine. Um, The week I was making this decision to go back to do um, respiratory paediatrics, the fellowship, I opened the Sydney Morning Herald and there was an ad. Those were in the days when there were ads in newspapers, especially how long ago it was. Good old days. Uh, And there was an ad for somebody to make science and medical programs for ABC Radio. Oh, wow. And actually, nobody had ever asked me or I'd I'd never even asked myself, what was my dream job? And this was my dream job without my ever having (laughs) articulated it to myself. So I spent days and days writing the application, uh, and to my amazement and anybody who knew me uh, as amazement, I got the job, and that, um, that's where I've been ever since at the ABC.
0: Fantastic. So that was a great, uh, you, you knew what you wanted, and there was obviously... Well, I, I didn't know what I wanted, but when I saw it, I knew
1: what I wanted. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and, uh, and
0: I'm, 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 a, I'm a very lucky person
1: where the work that I do, I'm made for it. So there's the acting component there's a the writing component, there's a the communication component. And, you know, I like telling stories, yes, and narratives and so on. So it's been good. And I, and I, in a sense, I've never had to give up medicine because this is my medical specialty.
0: Yes. And look, um, that obviously um comes out in when we've been seeing you so much during these last couple of years, obviously. So, but the fact that you can bring that high level of clinical information and gather that information, which is an interesting um, topic on itself because this type of journalism is very specific, dynamic. You have to be very agile and be across what's happening in the world of medicine around the world. So I can imagine that you spend quite a bit of time researching and it would be quite a difficult journalistic job, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, it's been the hardest journalistic work that I've had to do because you, you literally you had to bring every skill that you've learned to bear. So I couldn't have done this on year two of my career as a health and medical journalist. Mm. You know, it's, it's year thirty or forty, or whatever, I've lost track of how many years it is. I, I did start at the age of twelve. I have to say, <laughs> obviously, but, I'm
0: looking at you, yes. Yeah.
1: Um, but so you know, you're bringing together. Your know, critical faculties, in terms of critical uh, analysis of scientific literature, in an environment with COVID, where almost none of it was peer-reviewed, it was being published on the hop, mm-hmm. and therefore you had to read papers, try and work out whether they were ridiculous or had some cred. I, I had a kind of I had a group of pe- of experts that I called upon, and was able to suck their brains and work out what was legitimate, what wasn't, and, and then translate that into terms that the audience would understand. And so that was constant. There was just new, if you go back to 2020, remember when 2020? 20, 20, I, um, I can barely remember I actually, 2020.
0: I do remember actually quite distinctly I was at a, a medical conference in May, early May, and literally as the conference was Friday, Saturday, everything was being shut down, you know, like, it must have
1: been March actually, rather than May. Oh age. yeah, you're so right. March.
0: Yeah, it was March. It was. You're quite right. Early March, first weekend in March, and it was just closing and closing, and and then there was another conf- medical conference that and no, that urology conference no, it's not going on. This dermatology conference is, and it was like, and I've got to be honest, as a business consultant, all my clients just went, we're in a panic. You know, I think everybody was. Are we? Are we all going to die? What's going to happen? Is the world going to end? It's that information, the the fact that you were providing expert information through the Corona podcast was invaluable, you know, and the fact that you were able to gather the information. I was actually speaking to another guest on the podcast, Dr. Marie Rostek. She's a good friend of mine, plastic surgeon down at Mornington. And I said I was going to speak to you, and she said, please ask, how did you possibly put all your information together? Because even back then she would have to see things on social media. And she was spending five hours to cross check and investigate myocarditis risk stats between different vaccinations because she could see that people had the wrong information out there. So she said, how on earth did you do it day after day? Like, What was the team? How did you make that happen?
1: So the podcast is me, uh, Tegan Taylor, mm. and our producer, Will Ockenden. Interestingly, we've only been in the studio together twice, and we're to our third year because Will and I were in Sydney, and then one day March, Will walked in and said, I'm packing up in Sydney and I'm driving to Tasmania, because that's where he comes from. And he drove to Tasmania, we we never saw him again, but he <laughs> produced it out of Tasmania. And Tegan's based in Brisbane. So we, we've done that. So that's the team, and- Well, only um, three of you,
0: seriously? Yes. I just would have assumed there and was
1: more. So yeah. no researchers or anything like that behind us. So you, you learn to sift the chaff, I mean, there's, two, there's another thing to say here, too. I've always been interested in pandemics. And I did a series of four documentaries on pandemics for Channel 4 UK in 1990, uh-huh. which has been shown in 27 countries. So I was, I was primed for this. I've been talking, you know, I covered HIV when it began. So, yep. so pandemics is something I mean, I never thought I'd ever lived through something like this. But I was without ever being consciously ready for it. It's like opening the Sydney Morning Herald that day and seeing it and think, oh, that's what I'm ready for. Mm. And in a sense, I, I wasn't consciously preparing for this because I never thought I'd live through it. Mm. And here we were. And uh, look, as a journalist, we're a bit like lawyers in some senses, Is that or a barrister. So barristers are really good at going through complex information, getting rid of all the crap, and getting to the kernel of what a case might be. And journalists, good journalists, I'm not suggesting I'm a good journalist, but Good journalism is about getting all the material together. But it's no good having the material all together if you can't actually cut it away to its bare bones and work out what stands up as real and solid. And when, you know, I ran Radio National for a while in the early 90s and I've done a lot of recruiting and hiring. And you'll find people who love amassing information, but then they can't do anything with it. Mm -hmm. They've got it all together. So the worst researcher you can have on a show and they don't survive very long, is they present you with a bundle of data and haven't sifted through to say, here's the core of it. And that's essentially what I've been doing for decades, is just getting rid of all the crap, what stands up in the middle, testing it out with people I know, not, not going to them first, in a sense, creating a hypothesis saying, I think this clotting problem with Astra is real. Mm. Nobody else seems to think it's real. The de- the say says about 1 in 70,000. What do you think? Am I off being here? And you go to two or three different people who you test your ideas on. And interestingly, I was heavily criticized for for going with that clotting story, but it was about trust. The audience had learned to trust the ABC for its information on COVID. And if I'd covered that up, we would have lost trust. And -hmm. it was better that people had their information straight. And it turned out, despite all the denials, you know, ATAGI denied there was a problem, TGA denied there was a problem, Chief Health Officer denied there was a problem, the Prime Minister denied there was a problem. When there was a problem, you yeah. had countries like Germany, Denmark, and some excellent public health researchers, excellent virology researchers, taking this thing off the market or being very careful about it. And the Finns, within 10 days, said this is a one in 70,000 problem, and they were right. You know, months later, they were still kind of right. Mm. Extraordinary. So, yeah, sometimes it's a bit risky, but you realise that you just got to be straight with the audience, treat them as intelligent, sentient people. And what was really interesting during this is the audience for CoronaCast was very young. Oh, is that well, what the stats showed? Very young.
0: Okay. Uh, you know,
1: it, it was young people got really connected with COVID. Mm -hmm. And and a really wide audience. And when we were recording this um, podcast, the weekend just gone by, I was at Adelaide Writers Festival giving a presentation, um, admittedly about my book, but there was 2,000 people there for it. And they were tend to be boomers. You think, oh, well, that's kind of a radio national, local radio audience. But yesterday, I gave a talk for International Women's Day to a a, a women's conference called Future Women, just women from all walks of life. These were women who were in their late 20s, early 30s. And I was no stranger to them. They were, you know, people coming up saying, we've been listening to every episode of Corona Mm Fact." Just extraordinary how people got connected. And the other thing I think is relevant for doctors, and I don't know whether people listening have had the same experience. You know, I've spent 30, 40 years in broadcasting distilling complex information, often from laboratory science, for a general audience. And I've never really been sure what people even understand what a cell is, much less DNA or RNA. And when we started CoronaCast, the sort of questions we were getting were, you know, how do I wash my hands properly? Can I go to the swimming pool? You know, Really basic questions. Questions we get, you know, after about a year, so between March and end of May, beginning of June 2020, we got 200,000 questions. Oh, wow. To Hundred thousand. We're getting three and a half million downloads a month. Mm. And and the questions are almost like a daily barometer of the issues. Mm. And they still are actually to this mm-hmm. day. So the questions we we got after about a year were, you know, I and this is the same audience, so it's not a different audience. Yeah. You know, I read that paper in the Lancet that you were quoting uh, you know, last week, and I reckon you got your statistics wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, if, and they're usually right, actually, that I got the statistics wrong. You know, so they know about RNA and sort the health literacy has just taken this quantum leap forward, which is actually, I think, a major issue, particularly for specialists, but also for GPs. Mm. It's that I, I think, I don't know whether people have that reaction, but my impression from the audience is, at least my audience, they know a lot more than they did before.
0: Oh, Absolutely. I would say working because as a business consultant, I work with many, many specialists around Australia and where in the past you would have been referred to a specialist because the GP said this is the best person for you. The patient shocks around and knows exactly who they want to see and often just goes into the GP and says, send me to this person. I've read what they've done. I've seen what they do. So really, the power is with the patient now, and they do a lot of investigation, they do a lot of reading, and they don't take things on face value anymore, as you would. And, say.
1: I, and you've got this, the book that you mentioned. there, you know, So you think you know what's good for you. I actually wrote it originally for millennials. Mm. I'd been giving talks to millennials. Um, it's a complicated story, but I'd been giving a lot of talks to groups of millennials, and discovered that they are very health conscious. They know a lot about health, but interestingly, they didn't know what information sources to trust.
0: Yeah, I'm going to bring you on to that now because I've I've actually listened to your book. It was a wonderful my husband and I were driving to Mount Hotham and all the way back. So it was perfect timing. We listened to it. It was a good a good length. Okay. It was fantastic, and that's exactly... And I didn't
1: put you to sleep at the wheel. That's good, too. No, it was
0: great. We sort of, Mm -hmm. even when we stopped for coffee, oh, my gosh, stop the book, I need to... But to be honest, so I would, uh, I'm not clinical, so I'm a business consultant but worked with doctors for so long. Uh, So the book is called So You Think You Know What's Good For You, which is great, Um, and I'll get you to talk about why you thought to write this in the first place. But I've got to say, even as a listener, mature woman, I would say well-educated I was listening and going, oh, say, for example, intermittent fasting, you know, that you said in your book. If you're wanting it, say, I might be misquoting you for weight loss, it, it, I can't guarantee that, but the benefits of fasting, there are benefits to fasting. So that might benefit you overall or something like that. So it was just that you're listening to a true medical source. That's how I felt when I was listening to it. So, excellent book. So maybe take us back. What made you think of even writing the book?
1: Well, this was in the first year of COVID.
0: Uh-huh. Aha.
1: <laughs> and I love a COVID uh, baby. <laughs> and, um, and people say to me, How on earth did you have time? Because I was doing a daily podcast, which mm. included us, you know, recording on a Sunday. I was on seven thirty several days a week, doing a lot of radio and so on. So I was just doing a lot of work mm. and having to read and so on and so say, how on earth do you find time to write write a book? And I couldn't work it out actually until I realized that because of lockdown, I wasn't flying anywhere.
0: Uh-huh.
1: Yes. And fly, you know, just flying interstate, I would get on a plane and we got, you know, five in the morning to get a plane to Melbourne, sitting at the airport. Away, a day is gone for two hours in Melbourne and, and so on. So I wasn't flying. And then all this time, actually, spare time open. Second thing was I was going to write a book on COVID and a very wise, literary agent said to me, nobody's going to want to read about COVID. And after after a month or two of COVID, the last thing I wanted to write about was COVID. Mm. Um, and I thought, well, I really actually have wanted to write this book for quite some time because I'm sick of health books. And I've been sick of health books for decades. Mm. And most doctors are too, I suspect. I, think, I suspect I'm very typical of doctors because you know it's bullshit. Yeah. You know, it, the American humorist, H.L. Mencken, who but, you know, about 100 years ago said, and I'm grossly paraphrasing. It's not exactly what he said, but this is the essence of what he said. For every complicated problem, there's a clear and simple solution, which is always wrong. <laughs> and every doctor listening to this conversation has had people coming in, you know, thinking there's a simple solution to their problem. And, you know, plastic surgeons, for example, get this all the time. <laughs> and so But everybody, everybody gets it. Um, should I be eating pumpkin seeds for my prostatic hypertrophy and all, all this sort of stuff? So and the average health book, uh, it's often written by a man. And here's how it usually goes is what a fool you've been all your life. Yes. You What a complete idiot. If only you'd been eating goji berries, your life would be transformed. <laughs> So yeah. here I'm going to tell you how to eat goji berries and give you forty-five different recipes from goji berries. I hope there's not somebody who's written a book on goji <laughs> berries being suing me because of this. But yeah, the um, and here's the answer to all your problems. And they take away agency from the person, you know, so that you've got. I'm not going to give you the chance to make any decision about this. I'm so dogmatic. i believe in goji berries, and for goji berries, translate that, uh, you know. And even with all due respect to Michael Mosley, even the enthusiasm over fasting. Mm-hmm. Is is kind of along those lines. Yeah. Uh, I've written a second book, which comes out later in the year, which will be uh, a bit more critical of intermittent fasting than, but I won't go into that now. So I, I really wanted to write the kind of anti-health book because yeah. the other thing that doctors experience all the time is people who come in anxious about their health, particularly GPs, but but specialists too, and they're they're anxious about stuff that's not important. You know, so the sweating of the little stuff, when the big stuff encounters, I mean, the classic one I often say, more and more people were smoking. The classic one was there was some research to suggest if you really wanted to get hardened smokers to stop smoking, tell them that the tobacco has least been dipped in pesticide. Because <laughs> the fear of pesticide exceeded the fear of tobacco smoke. <laughs> I mean, that's like, but you, you know what I'm saying? So, yeah. so we, we, we sweat the little stuff. And we doctors collude with that because we, we medicalize stuff. So I talk about two bullshit words in the book. So I'm trying to explode myths for the audience, trying to get them focused on stuff that counts. So I, I hate the word wellness. I suspect lots of doctors hate the word wellness. Not yeah. well-being, but wellness. So the wellness industry, I mean, it's a complete bloody nightmare for doctors because people walk in the door thinking, that they're entitled to perfection. We all do this, yeah. you know? And so the norm is that if you're a bloke and you wake up in the morning, you're full of energy and you rush to the bathroom sink and you wash your pearly white teeth and you admire your six pack abdomen and your perfect children come in, <laughs> and you're ready for the day. Or if you're a woman, you jump out of bed full of energy, and you go over and wash your pearly white teeth and you admire your thin thighs and your small bottom rather than what's a normal body. When most of us wake up in the morning feeling utterly crap. <laughs> so and true. we want to stay in bed and we walk over to the sink to wash our teeth. And if you're me, you look at your abdomen, which is a Pinot Noir abdomen, and you think, oh God, I'm never going to have it washed. You know, that's that's, that's normal. but and, and people, we've lost this notion that life is full of ebbs and flows. Mm-hmm. How do you know that you feel well if you don't have the odd day that's crap? And so people come in to see their GP or maybe even a psychologist, a psychiatrist, and they say, I, you know, I feel crap in the morning. And if you don't take a careful enough history, you think they've got a problem here, but in fact they have good days and they have bad days. Now, if you feel crap all the time, you don't wanna get out of bed, you're not sleeping well, you don't wanna see your friends, you don't like doing things that you used to like doing, you don't to do them and you're really stuck, then you've got a problem. And it's getting, you know, it's understanding that. So, in other words, giving people a sense of what you should worry about. Everybody's got a bottle of these days, got a bottle of water at their desk, and they've got to feel they've got to, they've been told they've got to drink two or three liters a day. We were born with something called thirst. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's true if you've got an elderly patient who's a bit demented, they forget to drink. But, you know, for the vast majority of your patients, they've got thirst. And, you know, it used to be that coaches would say to marathon runners, you got to stop at every, water, at every water table just to drink, otherwise you're going to get dehydrated. And what happened is their times slowed down and some of them got water intoxication. Oh, that's interesting. Um, Ethiopian high mountain runners, who are traditionally the best long-distance runners in the world, mm. they run at their best when they're 2% dry. Ah, interesting. 2% dry. Mm-hmm. And elite sports people are now taught by their coaches only drink when you're thirsty. Ah. Drink to thirst. Sleep. Don't get me on about sleep. There's people who, they, they've got this thing, seminary hours. You've got to have seminary hours sleep a night. Yes. And you've got, I reckon we've got an epidemic of insomnia because people are anxious about having insomnia. <laughs> and the literature on sleep is really poor. Mm. And so, yeah, there is an association with sleep duration, what looks like sleep duration. And, and, and medical problems, such as dementia. But what it turns out is it's got very little to do with sleep duration, and it's got everything to do with sleep quality. So the best sleep therapy that you can get, which is evidence-based, and some very effective sleep therapy, you know, there's there's no mystery about how you treat sleep problems, does not turn you from a six hour a night sleeper to an eight hour a night sleeper. Mm. What it does, it gives you six really good hours of sleep, when you might have be been having six very bad hours of sleep. So, so we've even been misled on insomnia.
0: Well, absolutely. At That point on wellness and sleep, a lot of our information as common people, we get it from the social media and the wellness industry. But I suppose the marketers, the marketers, are, you know, you need to have your eight hours sleep by this mattress. You know, if you want to be well, you know, and and so. And there's no
1: better marketers, by the way. I'm sure I'm not going to help your your audience here than sleep physicians. You know, the <laughs> sleep medicine industry really, you know, really gets onto this. However, um, well, just you can send the the nasty emails to me. Um, (laughs) But there's just lots and lots of these examples. I mean, I'll have failed if I've made the job of a GP or specialist worse. Uh, What I hope is I've actually made it a lot easier because I've just got to the sense of it all. I mean, the other thing that happens is doctors know that there's an intimate link. Between what happens above your neck and what happens below the neck. Mm. That your mind and body are one. But the world behaves as though the mind is separate from the body. So true. And so if you're a GP or a specialist, let's say an orthopedic surgeon and so on, you somebody's got pain, and you've treated them for their pain, and they've still got pain, God help you if you say to the person, Look, I actually think you're a bit depressed and we need to sort this out your patient goes nuts at you because you're saying, oh, it's all in my head. You're saying my pain's in my head. It's not It's not in my knee anymore, blah, blah, blah. You're just trying to wriggle out of it. And doctors are now terrified to actually do what is actually good medicine, which is the mind and body are one. And uh, hopefully I've done doctors a big favor in the book because I'm just showing you the power of the, the brain dominates the body you know, the hormones that control multiple systems in the body. The body clock, the master body clock is in the pineal gland and it directs the other clocks. Every tissue in the body has got its own clock, even for orthopedic surgeons Mm. in the knee, the articular tissues in the joint. And the brain is attuned to your environment. So Mm. something is happening in your environment, it affects your brain, it affects the rest of your body. Something's happening in the rest of your body, it affects your brain. And that's many ways where I start the story and talk about it and
0: yeah in regards to that because I'm working with many many specialist clinics and their strategy and growth you know the business planning and strategies a lot of practices are now combining with allied health to be honest for that reason and so we're traditionally surgical practices as you're saying go ah there's your leg and off you go and but then that person's still maybe still feeling pain I don't know that they say much deal with psychology. I know a lot of plastic surgeons partner up with psychologists and so forth. Oh,
1: I mean, I, you know, good plastic surgeons yeah. know that they need to be psychiatrists as well. <laughs> the worst thing that, you know, experienced plastic surgeons know this is that if they operate on somebody who's coming to them with a psychological issue about their body, body's dysmorphia, Mm. they've got a disaster on their hands and will never have a happy patient. So they've got to be psychologists and psychiatrists as well as expert plastic surgeons. And and it's true for a lot of specialties.
0: Mm. Mm. And they do. They actually do partner up with a lot of allied health now, to be honest, because it's for the better outcomes for the patient. Because as you said, if you're going to operate on somebody for what, that's a body part and we haven't looked at the whole, then, yeah, it's yeah. it's not going to be resolved, really.
1: Well, that's right. If you A you know, knee replacement is a really good procedure, but if somebody's symptoms are not major, um, they're going to have symptoms following the procedure. There's got to be a net benefit, and, you, you know, you want a happy patient.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, your book, then, mm-hmm. I see I noticed on socials, I think, has now been launched in the UK as well. It has. Did you have to modify your content? Because a lot of your references were Australian.
1: I, th- I, th- I thought it would be, I thought there would, ha- would be a lot. So the I'm with the same publisher, Hachette, but it's called Octopus in the United Kingdom, selling through Amazon and Waterstones and others. And I thought they would want a lot of changes. So I went into it with quite some trepidation. But in fact, there weren't that many. Um, okay. it, was, it was like a day's work. They, they they got somebody to go through it in a lot of detail and they adjusted some of the uh, some of the statistics to suit the UK situation. Um, but they were happy with some of my Australian anecdotes. I mean, the reality is, so one of my chapters is forget the French, the paradox is Greek. because we all know about the French paradox, which is um that you know, they smoke gitans, they eat in the smoke town the budget croissants and live for river. It's not quite true, by the way, of the French, but nonetheless, it's a nice thought. So, uh, they're talking about the Greek paradox, which is that the second longest lived people in the world are Greek Australians. Mm. And, um, but the um, the the British publisher was very happy with that, keep that in.
0: Oh, good. Oh, yeah, I was, I was interested. Because I don't think there's
1: anybody in Britain that lives as the second longest lived people in the world, so it's a, pretty, it's a bit hard. <laughs>
0: Yes, interesting. Their diets are a lot different. I think you you've touched on that. Your background, actually, and the diet you yeah. grew up on. I've got in to say, Glasgow. I'm a yeah. i am am from a Ukrainian heritage, first generation in Australia. So, um, you know, with everything that's going on in the world at the moment, we've just had the pandemic, and now the whole political unrest. It's. Uh, and yeah. but I do know that you you know, well, firstly, had a, a sort of culturally. Exposure to, you know, sort of in that sort of that's a, re- a region, I believe, from your grandparents?
1: Yes, I'm about three-quarters Ukrainian going back.
0: Yeah. I just was interested in reading in your book that that the diet that you grow up on, was it fried? What was oh, it? Oh,
1: yeah, that, that was a Scottish diet more than the Ukrainian oh, Jewish it? diet. <laughs> there was the chip pan on the stove. It was a travel diet. I mean, the, the west of Scotland, which is where Glasgow is, has the – it's just about the highest rate of coronary heart disease in the world apart from some areas of India.
0: Oh, uh, well, it's good. It's good that you're addressing all those issues. Now, you said there was another book coming. What's? Can you give us a little sneak peek of what? No,
1: I'd have, I'd have to kill you. Ah. you.
0: <laughs> we'll have to wait. Have you got
1: a timeline at least? Oh, it's done. It's in. It's in with the publisher and it'll be coming out 1st of
0: August, thereabouts. This year? Yeah, so we can talk about it when we it can comes We can talk out. about that then. Fantastic. Yeah. Well Norman, we do have a part of the podcast at the end that I like to call rapid fire questions. Sure. Um, I've just realized there's a thousand other things that we need to discuss. So I'd love to have you on and I, I actually wanted to sort of explore the setup of tonic doctors in the media because that sort of really exploded that area. Like we've got lots of celebrity doctors on the on the media now. I mean, you were a trailblazer. I don't think there were that many back in 30 years ago when you were coming into journalism. So, yeah, right. yeah, a lot of changes in that space. What are your observations? We can touch on it briefly now.
1: Well, I think um, when I started, um, there was um, James Knight who was in the Women's Day or the Women's Weekly. So he was very popular. I think he did a little bit of daytime television as well. But there was nobody who was a journalist. Hmm. And journalists have come and gone who were doctors. So Mark Rag on The Australian. Margaret Harris on the Sydney Morning Herald. Margaret Harris has become a spokesperson from WHO in Geneva. So she's been on media a lot through COVID. Mm -hmm. But uh, she's uh, a Sydney-trained doctor who um, worked on Sydney Morning Herald. Alex Barrett, Sydney Morning Herald, who then is now a professor of epidemiology at the University of Sydney. But there haven't been many who've been actually journalists. So a a lot of the ones are... Shady GPS who go on to morning television or what have you, and I don't decry that at all. It's an important, an important function. So if I if I look around now, the other thing that's grown in the time that I've been around is the medical newspapers. So Australian Doctor, Medical Observer, Medical Republic, sure. and that's that's grown a base of doctors who write as journalists, but for but for a medical audience rather than a general audience. But the other phenomenon when I when I started was there were some people who were ostensibly researchers who never published in journals, their publication means was Women's Day or Women's Weekly. I'm not talking about James Knight, by the way. Uh, you know, people, people who actually, their credibility was that they had published something in the general press rather than anything in a peer-reviewed journal. And what's changed over time is that we, you know the medical research community in Australia has boomed. I mean, it's huge now compared to what it was um and the and people got very much better at communicating their research Mm -hmm. and there's now a body of journalists who are not doctors when i the other thing that happened when i started was that on the major newspapers the person who wrote who was on the medical round was usually a cadet a trainee journalist who stayed on it for three months just started to like it and got was getting good at it, and got moved on to something else. Mm -hmm. So there was always a really inexperienced person. And that rattled the doctors in Australia because they're always dealing with children who didn't know anything. They're going to get misquoted. Now you've got a body of journalists in Australia. You don't need to be a doctor to be a good medical journalist. You just need to be around for a while, learn Mm -hmm. how to do it well. And whether you're on a tabloid, you very rarely see a bad medical story now. Mm -hmm. So you know Channel 9, Telegraph, The Australian, Channel 7, you know, the commercial stations, as well as the ABC and SDS, they all have people who just been, you know, Sophie Scott and the ABC has been doing this a long time. Mm-hmm. She's very good at it. you just got to be doing it a long time because if it's there as a career for you, and you know, you might have to go back to somebody a year later to talk to them again about something, apart from your responsibility to the audience, you just get good at it and you don't need to be a doctor. Yeah. So it's changed a lot.
0: That's interesting. It's an interesting comment that it has changed a lot in that way and that you do perceive it as good medical information, which is great.
1: Yeah, we never reach the heights of the New York Times or the Washington Post or the or the Guardian in London. You know, we, we never quite reach those heights in Australia, but we don't reach the depths of some of the tabloids in the United States. You know, you, you don't see green Martian stories and the cure for cancer every day of the week. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of middling... Mm. even, relatively even quality. Yeah. I I think it's not bad.
0: No, that's good. Do you believe that that's going to improve over time, Mm -hmm. do you think, as the... Because it's a big interest in medical, yeah. Yeah,
1: when you ask people what interests them, number one's the environment, number two's health.
0: Yeah. All right, here come the rapid-fire questions. What business decision did you make that if you had your time again you would handle differently?
1: Um. I don't think I've ever made a good business decision, <laughs> uh, which is why right, you know the power of poverty. You know, joining the ABC was not a good business decision, but it was a very good career decision, and so on. You know, only one house that I've ever bought ended up being a good, uh, a good investment. And I once said on air my investment strategy was uh, buying a lottery ticket once a week, which got <laughs> me a sympathy letter from a financial advisor in Melbourne saying, "I'll just." I'll give you some financial advice for free. I felt so sorry for you. I <laughs> think creating Tonic was actually quite a, it was, it was a good business decision. It's become very successful.
0: Oh, well, yes, it's fantastic and it's well known. Well done. Um, who inspires you?
1: Ordinary people inspire me. I know a lot of people would say that to that answer that question, but you just hear from people in the audience who Uh, live such great lives, devote themselves to other people, um, selfless lives, get such pleasure out of helping others who come through adversity. And uh, one of the words I hate is resilience. And the reason I hate the word resilience is that it just gives you the impression that there are resilient people in this world and there are weak people in this world. And any doctor listening to this knows that their patients, particularly GPS who see the patients throughout life, is that you go through periods of your life and even ourselves as doctors, we go through periods of life where we're strong, where we're able to bounce back and you know do it and there are years of our life where we're just not it's not great where the relationship break up, problem with one of our kids. Etc. cetera, and you go through good and bad years. Mm. And I just really admire people who've gone through stuff. And there are now a, really a growing number of people in Aboriginal communities who have uh, triumphed and are doing incredibly well. I, I know one person in particular who runs an Aboriginal medical service, a very large Aboriginal medical service. Now, if I was running a corporate medical practice, I'd be hiring this person mm. at a million dollars a year this person knows where every dollar is in the business, has a strategic view of the healthcare system, and so on. As far as I'm aware, no university degree has taught himself, understands the system, and has a deeper knowledge of healthcare than I've met from any other people, and has done that um, without any advantage in life, without going to a private school and you know going to a college or city university.
0: So what do you think? Some people are born with
1: it? I think that some people... No, they're not born with it. Their environment that they grow up has nurtured it. You've, in an Aboriginal community, you've had an auntie or a grandma, Mm. um, somebody in your extended family who's taken you under their wing and encouraged you. You've got parents who've done that and been there with you through the journey of life. In other communities, it's your friends and social network and so on. And I, and I also admire people who've just got these extended social networks who, who just are natural the natural glue in any community, whether Aboriginal or non-Aboriginal community.
0: Fantastic. What words of wisdom would you give to your younger self?
1: Um, be a bit smarter about money, <laughs> number, number one. I, um, you know, I don't have any regrets. So I would say stick with it to thick and thin, which is really kind of what I did. There's not much I would redo that I've done so I wouldn't going back I wouldn't change that decision to do medicine I wouldn't be where I am now if I hadn't done medicine I wouldn't change the decision about coming to Australia that made me because when you migrate you take more risks Mm. I wouldn't make a decision you wouldn't change the decision about moving into the media and so on so you know stick with it when things look as if they're tough but always be prepared to change the decision but do it
0: carefully yeah good advice. Well, Dr Norman Swan, thank you very much for your time today and being on The Doctor Diaries, and we're awaiting with bated breath your new book that's coming out. (laughs) We'll see what it is, and thank you for your time today.
1: My pleasure, Hanya. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to The Doctor Diaries. You can find out more about our amazing guests on our website, hanyaroversby.com.au, Or join our Instagram page, Dr Diaries Podcast, to find out more about our podcasts. We look forward to you joining us again.